0: That was Keith Ward. He is an Anglican priest and for many years was a professor of theology at Oxford. He is the author of many, many books on topics like the philosophy of religion, on religion and science, on ethics and religion, and on the Christian faith in particular. One of his most recent books is titled Confessions of a Recovering Fundamentalist. Much of what he taught in that video, I can find in the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is what we are considering during Lent. The idea that God was before time and God will be after time as well. The thought that salvation is true enjoyment. The idea that doubt is essential for the faithful and that there is an absolute truth. We just can't know what it is. The deeper I get into Ecclesiastes, the more I think that these thoughts are like the thoughts of a really good professor at Oxford. This morning, a familiar passage from the book of Ecclesiastes. It's suitable to encourage those who suffer the springing forward of the clock like me. This is Ecclesiastes 3, the first 14 verses. There is a season for everything and a time for every matter under the heavens, a time for giving birth and a time for dying, a time for planting and a time for uprooting what was planted, a time for killing and a time for healing, a time for tearing down and a time for building up, a time for crying and a time for laughing, a time for mourning and a time for dancing, A time for throwing stones and a time for gathering stones. A time for embracing and a time for avoiding embraces. A time for searching and a time for losing. A time for keeping and a time for throwing away. A time for tearing and a time for repairing. A time for keeping silent and a time for speaking. A time for loving and a time for hating. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from all their hard work? I have observed the task that God has given human beings. God has made everything fitting in its time, but has also placed eternity in their hearts without enabling them to discover what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there's nothing better for them but to enjoy themselves and do what's good while they live. Moreover, this is the gift of God, that all people should eat, drink, and enjoy the results of their hard work. I know that whatever God does will last forever. It's impossible to add to it or take away from it. God has done this so that people are reverent before him. This is a story of God for the very people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, um, my children and my husband planned a ski trip this weekend for spring break. But on Tuesday of this last week, my 14-year-old texted me a picture of his right ankle from school and it looked like a softball on top of toes. Daniel, Daniel injured his ankle playing basketball and the adults around him suggested that he have an x-ray, so we took him for an x-ray. His ankle is not broken. It's not broken, but it certainly doesn't fit in a ski boot. And so this is what I've learned this week. There is a time for skiing, and there is a time for Netflix. And this is a week for Netflix. Of this, I'm convinced. The very first eight verses of Ecclesiastes 3 are composed of an introductory line that says there's a time for every matter. There is a time for every matter under the heavens. And then following that introductory line are seven paired lines, 14 pairs, 28 items. And these 28 items are a catalog of times. They are a catalog of occasions. You will remember that the number seven is significant in the Bible The number seven is associated with the sacred, with divine perfection, with completion. Like in the beginning, there were seven days of creation. And so here in Ecclesiastes chapter three, we have multiples of seven. And so that should draw our attention. This is an expansive list of contrasting moments. The list begins with birth and death. And it ends with war and peace, and it covers many things in between. There's tearing down and building up. There's crying and laughing, searching and losing, silence and speaking. Now, it's been suggested that the opening of these verses and the closing of these verses, those two pairs, are an envelope of sorts. So that means birth and death and war and peace are are the outside of the envelope. And these are times that are obvious to all of us. It's obvious these times demand our attention. And then the times in between are less demanding. They are less obvious, but no less deserving of our attention. I don't know about you, but I get that. In my own family... When there's a birth or a death, it is difficult for me to focus on anything else. It demands my attention. It gets my attention. All my activity, all my energy narrows in on the homecoming that is before me. When my oldest child was born and she was just a few days old, the plumbing went out in our house and we had to go to a hotel. For a couple of days and my memory was that this was an incredibly difficult maneuver there were a lot of things that had to go with us all the baby stuff all the equipment and i also remember that nobody in the family was enjoying the hotel amenities during our stay nobody went to the pool nobody went to the workout room we didn't go to the local favorite restaurants this was no time for a vacation We just focused on the baby. We just focused on the birth. And likewise, death or a declaration of war or newly minted peace all instantly capture my attention. The list in between suggests that there are other less obvious times to receive. There are other less obvious times to savor. There is a time for everything under the heavens. However, biblical scholar Ellen Davis points out that there are a few things that are left off of this list. Oppression doesn't make the list. Wretched suffering doesn't make the list. Foolishness, deceit. There is no right time for these things. And this resonates with me this week as I pray for the people of Ukraine. For the ancient mind, there was a time for war, but there's no time for oppression. There's no time for wretched suffering. There's no time for deceit. Everything on the list of Ecclesiastes 3, it seems, happens to us. Birth and death crying and laughing, loving and hating, we don't choose these moments. It's more like these moments select us. These moments pick us. Theologian Pete N. says it's not that sometimes we are born and sometimes we die. No, there's a definite time. There is a time to be born and there is a time to die. And so the critic The professor here in Ecclesiastes is thinking about the absurd inevitability of what life brings us. These times, these occasions, it's as if they're beyond our control. They are inevitable. And so then it becomes ours to discern the pattern of life, to see what's right in front of us. To speak at the right time, to remain silent at the right time, to plant at the right season, to uproot at the right season. Ecclesiastes is, after all, wisdom literature in the Bible, and there are three books in the Bible that are wisdom literature end to end. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job and all three of these books in the Bible ask the question, what is the meaning of life? And Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that in order to find the meaning of life, you have to read the room. You have to read the room. You have to know what's right in front of you, what time this is, because it's disorienting and it is discouraging to get your seasons wrong, to get your times wrong, This chapter is a call to pay attention, to read the room, to pay attention to what life is bringing me. I find it difficult to espouse predestination the theological idea that God preordains what will come to pass, and we don't have a choice in the matter. We are just puppets, we are just actors. It's that overused line, that God is in control line, that makes me bristle just a bit. I always want to reply to that line, yes, but. God is in control. Yes, but, you know, God sees me and God kind of likes my work. Yes, but God says that you count too. God is in control, but God values relationship. And God is not an autocrat. I know that my Wesleyan theology professor didn't much like predestination either. Instead, he would talk, he would teach about the dance of grace. That the divine leads and I follow. Grace is mine to respond to initially and then continually, always, forever. Old Testament scholar Ellen Davis calls Ecclesiastes 3 a description of a dance of great skill. That life is a dance of great skill. That you and I dance. That we are a part of. That there is a time for everything. Can you imagine the beautiful steps that could be used on this dance floor? Now, my children are never going to believe what I'm about to tell you. But there was a time in my life that I was a dancer. (laughs) When my husband and I were dating in college, we took dance lessons. We took jitterbug lessons. And we weren't bad. We were actually pretty good. We even had a few aerial moves where my feet actually left the ground. But I sure didn't want to be surprised on the dance floor by a cartwheel Or by a lift in the air, that would have been disorienting back in the day and today it would just be a disaster. (laughs) It might have thrown my back out 30 years ago, it sure would today. You know, there is something to paying attention. There's something to paying attention in this life, to receiving what is before us, to responding to the gift in front of us, to enjoying this dance of great skill. So how do we receive the gift of the time that is in front of us now? There are a couple of hints in the verses that follow the great poem of verses 1 through 8. And so I want to point to those tips. The first is found in verse 11. Verse 11 says God has made everything fitting in its time but has also placed eternity in our hearts without enabling us to discover what God has done from beginning to end. And so, this is a nod to the great mystery of God. We know of God, but we don't know everything about God. We have a love of the world that surrounds us, we have an appreciation for God's work in our hearts, but we just don't know we can't know the extent of it we can't know what God is up to from beginning to end is what Ecclesiastes says it's simply beyond us we do have the capacity as humans to look beyond ourselves but we can't quite get the meaning of the whole thing we can't quite get the meaning of it all it's like what Keith Ward said in the video yes there's an absolute truth but we don't know it William Brown wrote, people are not so much the shapers of life as they are the recipients of life. So to be a good recipient is my goal. And this leads me to the second tip in the scripture passage, which is found in verse 14. Verse 14 says, I know that whatever God does will last forever. It's impossible to add to it or take away from it. God has done. Done this so that people are reverent before Him. Reverent is the word that calls my attention. Reverence in uh, the Hebrew word that is used here that gets translated reverence can also be translated fear. Some Bibles say the fear of God so that we will fear God. Other translations of the Bible say stand in awe, AWE, before God. Reverence does seem to be the key to the whole passage for me. In her book, An Altar in the World, Barbara Brown Taylor calls reverence the act of paying attention. And we can all do this in our day-to-day lives. It is the virtue that keeps people from trying to act like God's reverence. A Native American elder that Taylor knows says that he begins teaching people reverence by steering them over to the nearest tree, standing them in front of the tree and asking, do you know that you didn't make this tree? If they say yes, then he knows that they are on their way. They're on their way to discovering reverence. Reverence is practice when awe is awakened in us and we are reminded of our true size. She says, Barbara Brown Taylor says, and I believe this, that we don't have to invent a new spiritual practice to practice reverence. Things like praying for our enemies, laying on of hands, anointing the sick, bathing the dead. If you've ever done any one of these things, then you know that it's just about impossible to do them without suffering a sudden onset of reverence. It's just kind of built in to those spiritual practices. Reverence is to be captured in the present moment, in the moment that stands right in front of us. It's not looking through the moment or past the present moment, but it's being present, giving yourself entirely to what's in front of you. And then amazingly enough amazingly enough it's as if that moment returns the favor notices you and blesses you gives itself to you each season of life calls out pay attention pay attention here will you Will you do it? There is a season for everything and a time for every matter under the heavens. Pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit. Would you awaken us to your work? You put the scenes of life before us and you set in motion these scenes with your holy breath. We seek, Lord, to pay attention, to practice reverence, but we know that we are prone to missing out. We are prone to getting sidetracked by fear or shame or our grip on control. Release us from these blinders that block the vision of our spirit and free us for joyful obedience, following and enjoying the stance of great skill called life. We ask these things in the name of one who leads everything, who leads all things to life. Jesus the Christ. Amen.